0: I'm Mark Beattie, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease and Childhood. I'd like to highlight some content from the June edition of the journal. We as a journal are interested in high-quality, quality improvement reports. The first article I'd like to cover is Mentoring and Quality Improvement, Strength and Integrated Management of Common Childhood Illness in Rural Rwanda integrated management of childhood illness is the leading protocol designed to decrease under five mortality globally although its potential impact is threatened by quality of care in this issue maggie and colleagues report the outcome of a nurse mentoring program mentorship and advanced mentorship and enhanced supervision at health centers mesh for short in two rural districts That's 21 rural health centres in Rwanda. The detail of the intervention is described in the paper. This was a pre-post-study with outcome assessed through a validated index of key integrated management of childhood illness assessment recorded at baseline and 12 months. The index is effectively a checklist of good clinical assessment or care, including things like ability to drink, Presence of severe vomiting, convulsions, difficulty breathing, weight, presence of edema, and such like. The index increased significantly in both districts. The impact was positive across multiple healthcare outcomes. For example, the number of children seen by ICMI trained nurses increased from 83.2 to 100%. Use of ICMI case recording forms increased from 659 to 97.1%. Correct classification increased from 56% to 91.5%. And correct treatment from 78.3% to 98.2%. This data is impressive and goes to the heart of what can be achieved through a well-thought-out quality improvement initiative with initial analysis of the issues, package intervention, comprehensive assessment of feasibility and success of the intervention, efforts to attain sustainability, and thereby a long-term impact on health outcomes. The second article I'd like to cover relates to autoimmune encephalitis. So, autoimmune encephalitis is increasingly recognised... ...as an important cause of encephalitis in adults and children. In this issue, Wright and colleagues report the clinical features, management and neurological outcome... ...of NMDAR, antibody-mediated neurological disease, in 31 children in the UK. This is through the BPNSU survey, eight cases detected in 13 months with 23 historical cases. Diagnosis was by confirmation of the antibody to the NR1 subunit of the NMADR in blood and or cerebrospinal fluid. Median age at diagnosis was 8 years with a range of 22 months to 17 years. 23 female, 90% presented with behavioural change and neuropsychiatric features. 67% with seizures and movement disorders. Interestingly, presentation was without encephalitic features in seven, four of whom had psychiatric features and three, movement disorder. All received steroids, 71% IVIG, nine patients received plasma exchange and ten second-line immunosuppression. The interesting feature is that early diagnosis led to full recovery in 18 out of 23, although late diagnosis, that's diagnosis-confirmed, more than six months after the first presentation, had a significantly less favourable outcome. Seven patients relapsed, four requiring further treatment. This is a new diagnosis. It's one that needs to be considered in patients who present with the above features. As with prompt treatment, the outcome is favourable. In an accompanying editorial, the importance of this and other causes of autoimmune encephalitis are discussed. The next article I'd like to cover relates to using digital multimedia to improve parents and children's understanding of clinical trials. Many patients have difficulty understanding the information we provide to them and therefore struggle to make informed consent, including consent to research. The challenge is to make this better to support both research and informed decision making in clinical practice. In this issue, Tate and colleagues evaluate the effect of an interactive multimedia programme on improving parents' and children's understanding of clinical trial concepts and participation. There were 148 parents recruited and 135 children. Randomization was to the traditional paper model or an interactive multimedia programme with inline exercises. Understanding and perceptions of information delivery and satisfaction were assessed before and after using semi-structured interviews. All participants improved their understanding, parents equally by both strategies, children significantly better using the multimedia package with mean post-intervention scores of 11.6 versus 8.85 mean pre-test scores being around 4 and a potential maximum score being 18. All found the interactive package easier to follow and more effective. In essence, this is about delivering information in a more accessible way to increase interest and understanding. The paper is about research, but it's relevant to all aspects of healthcare delivery in the increasingly digital environment that we all practice in. The fourth article I'd like to cover relates to why was this child not brought. This is interesting. In theory, organisations should have a very clear DNA policy. So if children do not attend appointments, there's an action plan. And this is because there is a significant and known link between failure to attend and child maltreatment. In this issue, our I and colleagues report that fewer than 8% of English NHS organisations have guidance in the public domain, although 41% do at least have a policy. Specific advice within guidance relates to five categories. Reflection and review, direct interaction with the family, indirect interaction with the family, liaison with internal colleagues and external referrals. The authors advocate for national guidance tailored to specific services. The vulnerability of the child is emphasised and the wider issue of how to proceed if the child fails to attend or isn't brought is discussed in the accompanying editorial Why Was This Child Not Brought? The fifth article I'd like to cover this month relates to allergic rhinitis. So allergic rhinitis is common, it's often under-recognized, it's often under-treated, and it causes significant physical, psychological and social morbidity in children and young people. In this issue, Glenis Scudding discusses the optimal management in a comprehensive review of the evidence and published guidance. It's important to make the diagnosis and consider the differential. Asthma often coexists and can be worsened by uncontrolled allergic rhinitis. The different treatment options are discussed, including allergen avoidance. Pharmacotherapy includes a stepwise approach, using saline nasal sprays, non-sedating antihistamines (that's oral or nasal), minimally bioavailable intranasal steroids for moderate to severe disease, additional antihistamines and antileukotrienes. There is the option of immunotherapy, and that should be considered for refractory cases. There's no doubt that controlling allergic rhinitis is challenging but the potential impact on general health and quality of life for the individual makes it essential. Please refer to the journal website for the full articles. My name is Mark Beattie. I'm Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease and Childhood. Thanks for listening.